Many of you are, are, I feel like this is my third time here this year, so many of you now are becoming friends. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brad Willock. I am one of the pastors at Redeeming Grace Church, which is in Smithsburg, Maryland, so two exits further out, 70 that way. Um, Trav Newman and I were part of this church for many, many years, and in 2015, when great generosity, this church blessed us and sent us out to plant a new church And we want to make sure everybody, first of all, knows that our church is doing great. uh, And we are really thankful for the prayers of this church, for the support of this church. uh, And my being able to come this morning is just a tiny little fraction uh, of a way that we can say thank you for the generosity that you all have provided uh, in faith towards God for us to go and launch that church. So we we have been greatly blessed. Uh, We've seen wonderful growth um, I, just our children's ministry is, is something to behold. I think most Sundays now we have about 40 uh, down in our children's ministry, which, you know, adults, adults take summer breaks and stuff. Kids don't ever take summer breaks. So if you've got the kids there, then you know you've, that God's really doing something good there. Um, so this morning, more than even praying for me, pray for my wife because she's doing children's ministry. Um, I... I think it's exciting that having been here for a third time, you all are kind of getting like the nickel version. Uh, Our church is going through the Gospel of Mark. We're going verse by verse. And now I've been here enough that I feel like you all are kind of part of this message series with me. And I I don't have to start at the beginning. I can just pick you up where we left off and keep going. So we're going to do the same thing this morning. We're going to be in Mark again. We're going to be, uh, our church finished for the summer. And so we finished right in chapter 10. Because uh, chapter 11 kind of starts the, starts the passion, starts the trajectory towards the cross. So we're in chapter 10, and this morning we're going to do just this tiny little section uh, in the middle of chapter 10, chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. So if you want to start flipping through your Bible or grab your app, that's going to be a good place to go. Now, you need to know that I'm a sucker for YouTube videos. Uh, I can get lost in these things for far more than I'd like to admit. I won't put a timestamp on it. Far more than I'd like to admit. Some of them are awful. I mean, come on, cat videos? Really? No, no cat videos. Um, But there are some really cool videos out there. And I came upon one not too long ago when I was preparing this. Um, These guys that are sponsored by Red Bull do these extreme activities. And I mean, this stuff is nuts. And so the one actually turned out to be how I ended up taking my wife on a 20th wedding anniversary trip to Scotland. Uh, It's a video of this guy. They show him rowing across this beautiful body of water. And then he mountains bikes down the black cullens of sky in northern Scotland. So these are ragged. I mean, it looks like a moonscape. And this guy's just zipping down there. And you watch it for the first 30 seconds, and you totally lose track of him because the scenery is unbelievable. I said, honey, we need to go. I'm not going to mountain bike it, but we need to go see this. It is gorgeous. We have to go there. They did another one where this guy is surfing, put this in your mind, surfing down a zip line hung over a canyon. And then when he gets about halfway, he just jumps off and parachutes to the bottom. So I, I cannot fathom the difficulty or the mental stability of the people doing these activities. Some things are just incredibly hard, and in Scripture, there are also things that are simple, and there are also things that are really hard, right? So think about some of the Ten Commandments. Thou shall not murder. Okay, we're good. 
Bible's closed, let's go hit lunch, right? That's pretty straightforward. We know what that means, don't do it. Um, but there are other passages in scripture that are just, they're just difficult. You read them and you read them and you're like, God, what, this is, this is a lot you've packed in here. What do you want me to do with this? And, and some of them are just that, that zip line, surfing, canyon, base jumping kind of difficult. And you gotta like, okay. This week for you, we've got one of those passages. It is super short, but it is so packed in that we're going to have to work really hard to be able to pull out the pieces we need to hear what God would have for this. Okay, so when we hit one of these, we read it, we pray, we get godly counsel, we pray some more, and we ask that the Spirit come give us a piece of rest. And so that's kind of where we're going to shoot for this. We're going to pray like crazy because it's a difficult passage. And then we're going to walk through this step by step to get to the most clear parts we can. Okay, so this is chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. I am going to read it, and then we are going to pray, and I will give you a little overview of where we're going, and then we're going to dive right in. Chapter 10, this is God's word. It says, starting in verse 13, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And they took them into his arms, blessed them, laying his hands on them. Heavenly Father, all scripture is breathed out by you and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that we people of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So God, this morning, as we approach this tiny passage in this smallest gospel, we plead with you to help us. You have promised that your word is profitable, and we desperately want to profit from it this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would give me clarity of speech, and I pray that hearts and minds would be open to receive your word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would illuminate for each of us the ways in which we need to apply this passage to our lives, we pray this in faith towards you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so since part of our passage is difficult to understand and part of it is clear, we're going to take a really good principle of scripture. We're gonna start with what we can understand and we're gonna create kind of some guardrails with that and then we're gonna use that to inform what is less clear. And I'm going to use the analogy this morning of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So I'm going to start, and we're going to talk about the context, and the context is going to be the plate. And then you will find that verses 13 and the first half of the 14 kind of make our bottom slice of bread, and if we don't get those right, we're going to have trouble when we get to the sticky stuff and the really sticky stuff, and then we're going to put some bread on top, and we'll be good. Can you all hang with me for that? All right, so your context this morning it, chapter 10 is, we're, as I said, we're right before we're going to hit the passion. And so Jesus is starting to now drill into his disciples and drill into the people around him any last kind of instructions that he wants to happen. The first half of chapter 10, we spent two weeks on working on this. Jesus drills in very clearly on the topic of marriage and divorce. Some very clear teaching he had some, some scribes come to him and they had, some, they had some questions and Jesus really goes right after him and hits it really hard. Uh, and so pastorally, it's wise as you read through those first sections to slow down, 
what does he mean and how can we care for people uh, lest we end up too heavy-handed. But very much, we're coming with law. How do we get judgment? And Jesus comes back and says, "Mm, no, this is a message of grace and this is what this looks like. After our passage this morning, we get the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler comes to us and asks an enormously valuable question that all of us should meditate on probably, and we'll actually touch it this morning. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He too came with a law-based understanding. He said, I know the law, I have kept this from a youth, what must I do? And Jesus says, nope, you've missed it. That's not the point. And so those create this framework for us, right? This is the plate that's gonna surround what we're talking about. We're talking about law, we're talking about discipleship a little bit, where Jesus is kind of framing this up for them. We have to make sure that we have this frame set up so that we keep the context of what we're gonna talk about this morning in between those two things. Because, let's think of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. If you get your jelly too far off the bread, bad things happen. All right, so that's where we're going to start. Now, we can get into the passage. I can look at the passage. Um, Foundation, bottom slice, verses 13 through the first half of 14 is where we're going to start. And what we're going to find is that there are four actors, four actions, and four motives. So four different people or groups of people, four different actions, either active or passive, and four different motivations. So let me reread the first half, 13 and the first half of 14. It says, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. So let's just step through it piece by piece. It says, and they. Who is the they? They is this indefinite part of speech. So it's a bit like you hear someone say, uh, uh, they say that such and such and such. So it's, it's very broad, it doesn't have real specifics, and it's not gonna answer our question for us. So let's look and see what are they doing. They are bringing children. So most naturally, we can assume then that these are our parents, perhaps grandparents. These parents are bringing their children. Actually, it says they were bringing, which gives us kind of the sense that this is something that happened on a regular basis. So probably not a one-time event. Normally, Jesus would gather huge groups of people, and parents would come and say, here, please, Jesus, touch my, touch my child, bless my child. Next, to the point of children, we see little children. The word here is padilla. This word in general has a range that goes all the way from tiny babies up to about preteens. Now, the same story appears in Luke, and Luke just uses a word called babies. So we're going to say that this is on the smaller side of the scale is the kind of crowd that we're looking at this morning. And what are they doing? We see here in their passage, they are doing nothing. Because that's what they do really well sometimes. No, they are doing absolutely nothing. They're babies. They can't do anything. They're the only actors in our passage this morning that are without action. And that's really going to be significant in a little bit. So don't lose sight of that. Next are the disciples. Now we know who these fellows are. These are the 12 that Jesus selected to follow him most closely in his ministry and where he could invest himself in them to the point that they would be able to carry on the church after he went moved on. These were the guys that really should have understood Jesus the most. Uh, Peter, who we believe is the ultimate sharer of this story that Mark wrote down, um, was the leader of those disciples, and he is really transparent in a lot of places in Mark. 
that while they should be the ones that get it, they are frequently the ones that miss it the most. So we're in good company this morning if some of this doesn't make sense because even the people that Jesus sat down with, they didn't get it until he explained it either. Now, what are our dear friends, the disciples here doing? They are rebuking the parents. They are completely going off on these parents for bringing their kids to Jesus. Now, rebuke is, is pretty harsh, right? See, your parents know this one. First, you get the look, right? That's, you, you, mm-mm, right? And, and then there's the request. Parents, would you please leave, right? After that, then you get the appeal. You, you, you really need to leave. And then you get to rebuke. What are you thinking interrupting the master with these little ankle biters? Right? We're all the way over here at rebuke. Now, before we go beat up our friends too badly, you must understand that at that time period, children were not, uh, they were not worshipped, quite frankly, the way they are today. And that was for two big reasons. First, they were a very agrarian society. Right? And so until these little kids got big enough to be a contribution to the family, they were pretty much a liability. Now, some of us may feel our current dear children are liabilities to a point, but they absolutely did and were very practical about it. And the second was child mortality was extremely high. So a lot of times they didn't make a huge investment in a child because they didn't think they would be around very long. So sad as that may sound, the case can be made here that Jesus' disciples were really trying to protect his time. They were really trying to shield him from anything that may be a distraction so that the people that really needed to hear his message would be the ones that would be able to hear it without distraction. Now, the fourth actor, that brings us to Jesus, and we find what is Jesus doing in our passage. It says he is indignant. This word has the meaning of feeling or showing annoyance at what is perceived as unfair treatment. Now, not one chapter back in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples had been bickering to themselves, saying, who is the greatest? And in chapter 9, in the middle of chapter 9, Jesus says, what are you kids fighting about? And they're like, oh, he's like, I know what you're fighting about, because I'm God and I can do that. You want to know who's the greatest. So he takes a little kid, plops a little kid in front of him and says, you want to be great? Be like them. Mind blown. Completely different. What do you, this is a child. These are insignificant. No idea what to do with that. In a chapter later, it's clear they still don't know what to do with that. So for Jesus to be indignant here, something has to be happening in our story that is out of alignment. Something that is just not the way it's supposed to be and that Jesus is not going for it. So let's take a look now at our motivations. What motivations do we see from these people? Because in the end, that's really where we're going to get, that, that's where we wrestle the most, right? Our actions are just as a result of our motivations. So let's look at those. The parents' motivation is the simplest for us to figure out because the passage just tells us what they wanted, right? They wanted Jesus to touch their children. It was very common in the day for Jews to bring children to the venerated rabbi for a blessing, they would touch them, lay hands on them. Matthew's version says to pray over them. Think all the way back in your Old Testament to Genesis 48. Joseph brings his boys to Israel and he places his hands on them, places his hands on them and prays over them. The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walk, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, 
The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So this wasn't superstitious mumbo jumbo. These rabbis were priests. They were the mediators to God. And the parents in our story, like all of us who are parents today, desire that God would intercede in the lives of our children and bless them. Materially, yes, but Israel's blessing over his grandson was that God would make them an extension of his family, essentially part of God's kingdom, then reserved for the line of Abraham and Isaac. So the parents are bringing their children to Jesus with an appeal that he would do what only a mediator can do, include them in the forever family of God. Basically, without using the words, they're appealing to Jesus to save their children. And we do the same thing today. As parents, we long that God would intervene in the lives of our children to preserve them, to protect them, but most completely to bring them into a new life. We pray with them, we pray over them, we pray for them. We even commemorate this sometimes by we bring parents up to the front with new infants and we lay hands on them and we pray over them. These parents in our story were bringing their children to Jesus and that's precisely what they should have been doing and it is precisely what we should be doing. But the disciples rebuked them. They told them they were wrong. The disciples form up bouncers and to keep these parents away from Jesus, perhaps because of their lowly standing. I love this quote, so I share it with you this morning. The disciples, infected with the rabbinical zeal for inquiry concerning the laws of marriage, would not have the Lord interrupted by their coming to Jesus. On the other hand, regards the children themselves as the final word concerning the question of marriage. Remember our plate here, the disciples want to hear about more about law. That's the stuff they know. That's their framework. That's what they were raised on. The rich young ruler after this passage will want to know about the law, but Jesus' mission is not to explain it, it's to fulfill it. Now, Jewish law did not apply to children until they were 13 years old. And the disciples felt that these children were, were not capable of receiving anything from Jesus. Jesus is for grown-ups. And Jesus reacts to emphatically crush that sentiment. Children are incredibly important to the king. And as we will now look, they have a very special place in the kingdom. Now, we have a firm foundation to build our sandwich on. We have sliced bread number one. We're good. Let's get into the messier stuff. We know why the parents came. We know why the disciples were trying to run them off. But we don't yet have why Jesus was indignant. So let's read the second half of verse 14. After he said he was indignant, and Jesus said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Now, why does Jesus have such a strong irritation? Uh, say, near repugnance that the disciples are sending them away. Why, you ask? Because they are denying these children something that Jesus perceives to be rightfully theirs. Let me give you an example. If you were to come to my home, and you're all welcome to come to my house, I'd love to have you. If you come to my home, and then you say, Brad, you need to leave. How am I going to respond to you? I'm going to tell you, go fly a kite. It's my house. I have every right to be here. You have no right to tell me to leave. Right? This is the only place in Mark that he uses this word indignant. And to get the impression, Jesus' response is strong. 
he responds with a command. Actually, in fact, it's a double command. So let, literally, start allowing the children to come to me and do not hinder, i.e., stop preventing them. The rebukers are getting rebuked for rebuking. The kingdom belongs to them, and don't you dare withhold it from them. Now, we've got to pull more. There's more in here. We've got to keep pulling. The rebuke and the rationale are clear, but what is this to such belongs the kingdom of God, and what are the implications? So we have to, we have to get really small now on these. For to such belongs, this language creates a class of people. So if you've ever heard like a class action lawsuit, That's what this is forming. So when he says, for to such belong, we're creating this large group that all belongs together and all has one meaning. So in this case, children and babies are not just the handful present at the moment of the story, but they're part of a larger group of all those in that state, which in this case would probably include all babies and small, small children for all time. So we have a large group or a large class that Jesus is talking about. Next, he says the kingdom of God. So what does this class belong to? It says they belong to the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? That could be an entire sermon series on its own. We don't have to do that this morning because the passage actually answers the question for us. It says, let them come to me. They belong to the kingdom of God. Jesus is the physical manifestation of the kingdom. He is the king that makes the kingdom. So these children belong to him. King Jesus, who is in earthly form now, but would subsequently go to the cross, die and be resurrected, take up his throne in heaven, and will one day rule and reign over a new earth. He is the king, and they belong to his kingdom, the eternal kingdom that he's ushering in. So this raises some very practical and some very difficult questions. If Jesus is saying that babies belong to the kingdom, then does that mean everyone gets saved as babies? If we're all saved as babies, what's the point of evangelism? He cannot mean this, that everyone is saved as babies because we have two biblical bookends that keep us between the guardrails here. On one side, every one of these sweet little bundles of joy has Adam's sin nature from conception. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. And on the other side, we have that salvation comes by a conscious act of faith. Remember the story of Acts 16. Paul and Silas are in prison. The earthquake comes, opens all the doors. The jailer comes in freaked out. And they say, no, 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 we're all here. It's all good. And his reaction is, sir, what must I do to be saved? And Paul doesn't tell them, ah, you're saved as a baby. You're cool, dude. No, he doesn't say that. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Consciously understand your desperate situation and then make a moral decision to accept Jesus' gift of salvation by grace. Now, we've already noted previously that babies are doing zip in this passage. They are neither believing nor not believing, and so they are under the curse are making no conscious moral decision, yet somehow are still a part of the kingdom. So what does this mean? Deuteronomy 139 is the key to our puzzle. We're going all the way back in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel is being punished for their rebellion for not going into the land the first time. You remember they, they got right up to the edge of the promised land. They sent out the spies. Joshua and Caleb came back and said, 
this is awesome. God's got us fucked up with a really good thing here. Let's go. And all the rest of the, the spies said, whoa, no, there's big, scary giants there. We're going to die. And so God is now rebuking them for their lack of faith in him. God's about to block them and send them on a 40-year lap of the desert. And before doing so, he says this, and as for your little ones, who you said would become prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. Now, the children are told here by God that they're going to get to enter the promised land. They're included. Now, they have a sin nature. They were there when everyone rejected them. They still have Adam's sin, but why were they included? And God says here through the Old Testament, they were included because they are amoral agents. They have no knowledge of good or evil. They are neither believing nor unbelieving. They are doing zip. So if they're going in, it's not because of them. It's because something is being done for them. Their inclusion in the kingdom from beginning to end is one of grace. And when we get this key in the door and we we turn the lock on this one, we see the heart of Jesus on full display. The disciples and the rich young ruler wanted to talk about the law, and Jesus shows them a model of grace, perhaps the pinnacle of his grace. Now, most of these babies in the story would grow up to be moral agents. They will become a point where they have a knowledge of good or evil, and they will have to make a choice to believe or to not believe. The extension of grace is not indefinite. Whether you want to call it age of accountability, coming of age, you, you can call it whatever you want. But, but there are some in this class that never get there. Now, my dear Elizabeth, uh, it, who is now almost as tall as me, my dear Elizabeth is what they call a rainbow baby. We lost a baby very shortly before we had Elizabeth. And we were graced with her right after. That dear child never knew good from evil. Many of you here this morning know people, or you yourselves, I don't know you all well enough, you yourselves have lost infants or young children who have not grown to a point where they can know good or evil. Parents and family of those, I I, I want to talk to you right now because this passage is for us. This passage makes right what seems oh so very wrong. When the baby that resulted from David's adulterous relationship with Bathsheba was sick, David pled with God. He cried out to him. But when it passed, David's response to the service to the servants is so vindicating for us. He said, "While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again?" Listen to this. "I shall go to him" but he will not return to me. David's confidence in this situation is dependent on that he will go again to the child. So what has happened to our babies that have left too soon? It would seem now clear from this passage that they're home. We shall see them. We shall go to them again. By God's special provision of grace, they will be waiting for us in heaven. And I think it's fair to say that the same application of special grace applies as well to those who remain amoral. Can you go ahead and throw that picture up for me? Uh, Some of you know my family and some of you don't. This is my gaggle. Um, I I have, uh, frankly, a lot of kids that fall into this category. Um, When they told me, dear Aaron, uh, here on this side, would never be born, 
Um, he's now 19, and he's got the last laugh on them. Uh, Aaron, you know, Aaron has no concept, right? He does not have a, an understanding. Um, my Hannah, dear, dear Hannah, all the way on the left, we adopted her from Seattle. She is marvelous. Um, Miss Pretty Pretty is limited in so many ways. Um, and uh, Vanessa and Luke and Andy, and, and you guys know these same kinds of children. Each one of these young people are a special creation of God. And a part of what makes them so special is that they're like babes. They have no spiritual knowledge of right or wrong. And whether you want to call them elect or not is something the scholars can fight about. But I can tell you as a parent, the only hope I have in the world for these kids is grace. If I have to rely on Aaron walking down an aisle someday, it will never happen. If I have to rely on Hannah praying some special prayer, it will never happen. If that's what it takes, then my kids are hopeless. And God would be just to condemn them, for they are born in sin. But he would be a mean, uncaring jerk for creating them without hope. But that's not the heart of God. That's not the heart of King Jesus. The God of this universe stepped into human form, called them, put them on his lap, and said, you let them come to me. Such belong the kingdom. They belong to me. Do you hear the strength in his voice, in his indignation? He says, these are mine. And if that's the case, if that's how God views children, then I have more than hope to fall back on. I have grace. I have what the Jesus Storybook Bible calls the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. So for parents of babies present and passed on, parents of beautiful, what my wife and I call special tomatoes, I would pray that you hear clearly this morning that Jesus loves these babies more than we ever could. And he has provided a special grace that puts their bounty chair or their wheelchair at the feet of Jesus in heaven. These are mine, he says, and no one can separate them from him. Now, I don't know how I pull it together after that, but I have two more verses, so I'm going to try. Verse 15. Verse 15 is the peanut butter in our sandwich because it's what needs to stick with us the most. Truly I say to you, if you ever read that in Scripture, it's Jesus' very polite way of going, pay attention. Okay, this is about to be important. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Shall not. In no way, absolutely not, no way, Jose. You're not getting in. Listen, the only way to enter my kingdom, Jesus said, is to receive it like a child. Now, we previously saw that as adults, we cannot enter into the kingdom through the special act of grace conferred to children. We are now moral agents. We are spiritually aware of right and wrong. So how does this apply to us? Since children are the subject, I will now use my dear Vanessa uh, as an object lesson. In 2015, a week after my dear church was founded, my wife and I hopped on a plane to Lithuania to meet Vanessa for the first time in an orphanage. We had a couple of pictures of her, and all she had of us was a picture book that we sent so she'd vaguely know what we look like, even though she knew no English and could read any of the words. A few days later, a judge pronounced her to be a part of our family. 
And what did she bring when she entered into our family? The answer is nothing. The only thing she left the orphanage with was a photo book of her baby pictures, the memory of who she was. She didn't even leave with a shirt on her back. We brought that too. She brought nothing, but you see, she got everything. She got new clothes, she got a new citizenship, a new family, a new home. She brought nothing and she got everything. That's the picture of grace. The whole section before and the whole section after is about law and rules. And Jesus says, no, you guys are missing the point. One way in, kids, it's by my grace. This is the one only singular way to get into my kingdom. It's by my grace. You bring nothing, you get everything. I don't, I don't remember where I read this in my studies, but it says, empty hands can be filled. Empty hands can be filled. Don't bring your rule following. Don't bring your good deeds, because there really aren't any way. No, no, you bring empty hands, and Jesus fills them. That's how it works, right? Let me illustrate this another way. What are some of the characteristics of children? Trust, obedience, purity, absence of prejudice, wonder, humility. Do those expressions describe your faith? Somehow, I don't know how this happened, but I got a whole family of huggers. Okay, I don't know how this is possible. I had to go to remedial hugging school because I'm just not a hugger, but all of my kids are huggers. Now, there is hugging, and then there is Vanessa-style hugging. You put your arms out to that girl, she looks like one of those guys from the video. She's got like a Red Bull in one hand and a GoPro in another and one of those squirrel suits, and, and she's in. She is full on, full commitment, first airborne division coming in for a hug. Do we trust in God's grace like that? Or do we fall back under the laundered judgment for our sin? When Vanessa goes for the hug, there's no going back. She, this is like a Romans 8-1 hug. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's ripped off the rearview mirror and that's how children operate, right? One commentator said it well. He said, we should know that a future is coming after us when the light of the gospel will shine more clearly. It is the proper nature of a child to live all together and absolutely in the present. What the present moment brings, it receives with simplicity and joy. The past vanishes from its vision. Of the future, it knows nothing. And every passing instant suffices for the happiness of its innocent nature. It's not what you did or you didn't do. It's not what you will or you won't do. It's what he did and our unswerving trust in him. True childlikeness is full of faith. And we can do this because God can be completely trusted. Verse 16, top of the sandwich, let's bring it home. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. See here how Jesus completely outdoes the desires of the parents. They asked that he would touch them. And you, you can think a little bit like the story of the centurion. Jesus could have shouted across the room, oh yeah, they're blessed, you're good, get out of here. No, 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 he, you just see this picture. He draws them near to him. He scoops them up in his arms. What a sweet picture of how he cares for us. God is fulfilling his promises to us through Jesus. Isaiah 40, 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. Isaiah 44.3, For I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on dry ground. 
I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Jesus came and poured himself out abundantly that we might come to him with the simplicity and trust of a child and accept his gift of eternal life by grace alone through faith alone. Empty hands can be filled. Put down your junk, put down your rules, your past, your whatever, and enter the kingdom like a child. I'd like to close by having you hear the gospel one more time, but I'd like you to hear it like a child. If you've never read one of these, this is the Jesus Storybook Bible. A wonderful, wonderful telling. Every story in here drips of gospel and you can't miss it. Let me tell you the same story that we read this morning through this. It says, Jesus' friends were arguing. Who was the most important helper in God's kingdom? They wanted to know. I am, James said. No, you're not, said Peter. I am. Nonsense, Matthew said. I'm the cleverest. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, no, am too. This silliness it went on and on for some time. You see, Jesus' friends had started thinking they had to do something to make themselves special to Jesus. And if they were the cleverest or the nicest or something, Jesus would like them best. But they had forgotten something, something God had been teaching his people all through the years, that no matter how clever you are or how good you are or how rich you are or how nice you are or how important you are, none of it makes any difference. Because God's love is a gift. And as anyone will tell you, the whole thing about a gift is it's free. All you have to do is reach out your hands and take it. So while Jesus' friends were arguing, some people who knew all about getting gifts, in fact, you might say they were gift experts, had come to see Jesus. And who were they? They were little children. Jesus' helpers tried to send them away. Jesus doesn't have time for you, they said. He's too tired. But they were wrong. Jesus always had time for children. Don't ever send them away, Jesus said. Bring the little ones to me. Now, if you had been there, what do you think would have, would have lined up quietly to see Jesus? Do you think Jesus would have asked you how good you'd been before he'd give you a hug? Would you have had to be on your very best behavior and get dressed up and not speak until spoken to? Or would you have done just what these little children did? Run straight up to Jesus and let him pick you up in his arms and swing you and kiss you and hug you and then sit on his lap and listen to your stories and your chats. You see, Jesus, children love Jesus and they knew they didn't need to do anything special for Jesus to love them. All they needed to do was run into his arms. And so that's just what they did. Well, after all the laughing and games, Jesus turned to his helpers and said, no matter how big you grow, never grow up so much that you lose your child's heart, full of trust in God. Be like these children. They are the most important in my kingdom. No matter how big you grow up, never grow up so much that you lose your child's heart, full of trust in God. God loves our babies, he loves our specials, and he has more than ample love left for us. Will you fall back on your good deeds? Or will you don your squirrel suit, grab your Red Bull, charge your GoPro, and dive headlong into the arms of God's grace? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are a good God, and you have provided richly for us. You bless us in a zillion ways. 
God, you come before, we come before you now with empty hands. Our bad deeds are sin against you and you alone. Paul says our good deeds are as filthy rags. We lay all of those at the foot of the cross. We come before you with empty hands. Lord, fill them. Give us faith to trust you like a child. Give us faith to trust your promises for our kids. God, you are so kind to meet us in hard places. Minister to our hearts, Lord. Fill us afresh with the hope of your grace. Lord, be with us as we worship you. Be with us as we pray with each other. Be with us as we go back into this world that we may never lose our childlike faith in your goodness, your justice, your mercy, and your grace. In the name of our loving and caring King, King Jesus, we pray. Amen.